This episode brought to you by RichterCon 2020X, where at the stroke of midnight, Joe Richter, the GM that Paizo is afraid of, will use the secrets he learned watching the band Secret Cut of the Crow to summon the spirit of his favorite DM to ask him what kind of DM he really was and to teach him the mystical secrets of adversarial play. Don't miss it. Well, pop yourself a beer or a cold libation. Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start off with some talking and some moody clips of popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations, and some groundness exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the dogs come on, contests, and of course you know it's all about games. I said slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG Variety Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. Today is another mail call day. We're going to play the listener feedback I've received about my previous shows. If you heard yesterday's show, The Ballad of the Backstory, and have already called in feedback, you won't hear it today. I have received feedback already for that show. I do expect to receive more. The mail call episode that will come out on Sunday will have all that feedback in it. But the way I'm recording these, feedback will be basically four days after the episode. Or further on. You can always call about old episodes. But I'm not going to play feedback the day after the episode comes in. I'm going to give a little bit of breathing space to give more people a chance to comment on those episodes. So I've got a bunch of great calls. I don't want to keep you here all day. So I don't want to make the episode unnaturally long. But before we go to those calls, I want to remind you about my October contest, the October Initiative. You have until the full moon, the 20th of October, 2021, to send your entry in. All you have to do is tell me what your favorite initiative system is and why, and what your least favorite initiative system is and why. And this can be any tabletop game, RPGs, miniature war games, board games, card games, just no video games or VTTs. You can leave me those messages a number of different ways. You can leave a message on the Anchor app. You can send an email to nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. If you attach a sound file to that email, I can play it on the air and make you famous. You can reach out to me on Discord. I'm on a bunch of different Discords. If you send me a private message on Discord, you can attach an audio file to that. So if you send me an audio file, I'll play it. On the show on the 22nd of October when I announce the winner. If you just send me something in text, I will read your entry. So lots of ways to enter. No right or wrong way. Just send me those entries. Up for grabs. So everybody sends me an entry. Their name will go in a random number generator. I will pull out a random entry and that will be the winner who will receive a $20 drive through RPG gift certificate good anywhere in the world. And I will donate 25 American dollars to the charity of your choice anywhere in the world. That's like $1,000 Canadian. So 
If you don't have a favorite charity, of course, I'll be happy to donate to my favorite charity, Forgotten Angels, which is based in Florida here in the U.S., and they support children that have aged out of the foster care system. So lots of ways to enter, great prizes, great causes involved here. So get your entry in. I look forward to hearing it and playing it for everybody else. If you have any other comments about anything else, then feel free. You can reach out to me all those same ways, and I'll be happy to play your messages on the show. So without further ado, let's open up that mailbag. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's screaming is coming from inside the house. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Bandit's Keep. Uh, great uh, review or overview of the uh, D12 Go game. Uh, seems really cool. Um, While I don't like only having a bonus versus having a stat for a game that I'm going to play long term, I think for like a pickup game that you're going to play with new players or a first time kind of kind of almost like what you choose like paranoia for or often I use the hateful place for that's fine. It works really well. And I love the little uh, descriptions like the description of the character you rolled up to me was cooler than any stats. I totally forgot what you put for the stats, if you even said, but like the sneaky wizard that was whatever. I think that's actually super cool. And I think people that don't know RPGs or don't know RPG mechanics will really appreciate that. I think that's actually a really good um, good way to introduce people to things. Of course, that was Daniel Norton of the Bandits Keep podcast, YouTube channel, and actual play YouTube channel. Definitely check his content out. We're going to hear more from Daniel later in the show. If you are interested in hearing more about D12 Go, Jules over at the Jules from NZ podcast, latest episode actually talks about D12 Go, and she has the designer of the game on the show to talk about it. There's a link to that episode in my show notes, so go check that out. Our next set of calls are from Carl Rodriguez of the Geomologist Presents podcast. The first call is going to respond to the session recap that I gave in character. This was my character, the necromancer, Idris Khan's view of the latest session we had of Dungeon Crawl Classics. And Carl's going to respond to that. And then Carl's going to talk about why he thinks some GMs complain about players who pick demi-humans that are vastly overpowered and then play them like point-eater humans because they're just power-gaming megalomaniacs, but we'll have to hear Carl's thoughts on that. After that, we'll have a slight musical interlude from T.J. Drennan, and then we will dive into the hairy topic of metacurrency. Hey, Jason, I enjoyed the uh, the Colin show there with, with Joe helping you out, and you brought up metacurrency, and something stuck out to me as you, you said, um, you know, kind of define metacurrency, I think, is something that changes the narrative. Like, like there is a result, you dislike the result, and so you spend metacurrency to change the result, to kind of rewrite what just happened. And thinking about that, I'm thinking about the way inspiration works in 5th edition, where you don't get to decide, you don't spend it after you dislike the outcome. You kind of have to anticipate the stakes and choose whether to use your inspiration to, uh, to change the kind of role you're about to make. 
would you consider that a merit of currency? Because it's not really changing the narrative. It's just kind of stacking the odds in your favor for what is about to happen. So just curious how you would fit that, put that in the definition there. Thanks. Hey, BJ, thanks for the question. Of course, BJ does the Arcane Alienist podcast. Great podcast. So you're pinning me down on definitions, and I'm not good. I'm, I'm, I'm like Daniel. I'm kind of wishy-washy on definitions. I'm just messing with you, Daniel. So to be honest, yes, I, I think obviously that inspiration or, for that matter, spell burn in Dungeon Crawl Classics where you can burn attribute points to add to a roll or any game where you can at, use luck to add to a roll before you roll, say Marvel Superheroes by TSR, the only Marvel Superheroes game in Jason's canon, where you have to spend your karma points before you roll that die. Any of those games where you're, obviously you're doing something meta, you're trying to influence the die roll. So they are meta narrative mechanics to some degree, right? Well, they're meta mechanics. Are they narrative though? That's the question. And I look forward to everybody calling in and let me know this. I think front-loading a roll is different than re-rolling or changing a roll after the fact. Say, for example, Call Cthulhu 7th Edition, where you can add luck to a roll after you roll it. So I think there's a fundamental difference between trying to influence a roll ahead of time, but still being stuck with whatever that die rolls, right? So I can add, well, look at our DCC game. I added like seven points of attributes, in, seven or eight points of attributes in Spellburn to a roll, and I still rolled a two, so it still was a crap roll, right? Even though I tried to influence that roll greatly. Where in a game where you roll a two, but then you can add to it, you would know, oh, if I add 10 to it instead of eight to it, then I'm going to get the result I want. And I can affect the narrative. So, yeah, both affect the narrative. And I realize we're talking, there's a little pedantic here. But I really think there's a fundamental difference between roll the die and you're stuck with what you rolled and roll the die and then try to influence that number after you know what that number is. I think there's a greater tension and, and the stakes are higher when you have to roll the die after you commit, right? It's like gambling. When you go gambling, when you're at that back rat table, do you pony up your money? Do you make your bet after the result is seen? No. We're, right? You've got to pony up the money before you find out how, how you did. So that's kind of where I'm at here. I, I think they're fundamentally different. Well, I think they're kind of the same thing, but they're, they are different. I think front-loading a roll fits more in old-school games than re-rolling the roll and changing the result of the roll. But that's really just a gut feeling on my part, and I would have to think about it more. I'm kind of just responding to you off the cuff, as you can tell, as I blather. So I'm going to stop blathering and go to the next call. But everybody, please call in and let me know what you think about this topic. Hey, Idris of the Khan, chosen of the Sand God. I love your re what you retell. It is probably inaccurate, but it's good enough, right? So it's kind of cool that uh, things happen as they do. The judge hates dwarves. We know that. The dwarf is always beat up, but 
Does it matter? Does it really matter? Perhaps the God of the Sands dislikes dwarves as well. I love it. Thank you for the recap. The only complaint that I've heard on playing elves because they want the bonuses is from Gronyards who don't want to give players an edge or an advantage in their game because they want to shit stomp them into the mud and muck with their hordes of orcs or plant creatures. I'm calling in about GM meta currency, right? So in say the Modifius 2D20 game, you can't, if there is like a, a, a 20 or a 19, depending on, you know, what the, what the situation is, uh, even lower, depending on like, for example, mutant chronicles, like the more that the threat level increases, like the, the bad guys or the chaos is around, then the higher the chance of you generating a, a doom point, right? So if a character does this, say by rolling a 19 or 20 or whatever, the GM can right away decide something bad happens to that character or they can bank it. And I think that's maybe where the banking part of it is then you can use it against other characters later on because you now you have this doom you have this doom that begins accumulating and then you can use it for environmental effects which can obviously affect all of the players involved or for um special abilities for the, the big bads right or other lesser monsters usually the big bad you spend x amount of doom to do their super duper fireball fart thing so yeah, there's that. I'm trying to think in other games where that might be applicable. That, um, I, yeah, I think it. I think even in like the Genesis system in the Star Wars game, at least when you'd roll the, you know, the the Sith symbol or whatever, uh, then it went into your dark Jedi points or dark Force points, and you could use them. Um, either right away to impart a penalty or save them for later. So Carl was weighing in on the idea of GM metacurrency there, how it worked in a few games. He talked about, of course, the 2D20 games, and then he talked about some imaginary made-up game. I, I don't know what nonsense he was talking about, because the only Star Wars game in Jason's canon, of course, is the West End Games D6 one. But Carl's points are are well made. He's trying to dive into this debate about whether if a GM gains meta currency because the action's of one player and then uses that meta currency to attack a different player, if that's, you know, fair and equitable and going to cause problems at the table. Honestly, in my opinion, everybody's buying into playing this game. They know how the game works, or hopefully the GM's kind of described how it works ahead of time. So, because you're buying into the game and buying into this concept, I don't think people really will have a problem with it. You're already playing kind of a metagamey thing where you can do rerolls and and do things with your momentum or your doom points or this and that. So I, I don't know that anybody really would get butthurt because that meta currency is being used against them, even though it was generated by their buddy. I, I, I really don't think it's an issue, to be honest. But it is an interesting topic, and I'd be curious to know if anybody really would have a problem with that 
Although I would say if you have a problem with that, maybe you shouldn't play those particular games. Okay, the next set of calls, and when I say set of calls, we have quite a chain of calls, is, again, from Daniel Norton. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Maintenance Keep. I, <laughs> you were just starting to talk about me. Yes, I was talking smack about OSC. I always do. <laughs> Got to defend that BX line. But no, I, I was actually going to... Oh, we're truck moment. I actually was calling in about the idea of, like, releasing a game as a playtest... Not a playtest, but, like, almost like a beta version. Man, I think that's what playtests are for, right? Like, I mean, one of the reasons why, I mean, not that I plan on necessarily selling it, but one of the reasons why I released all my chainmail stuff to the public for free, obviously, um, was so that people could mess with it, or at the very least put it up as like a pay what you want on uh, itch or on drive through, right? And let people mess with it that way and be honest with them. But yeah, if they like released it as like a pay game and with a book and everything, that seems like maybe a bad, <laughs> a bad technique. But uh, yeah. Actually, you know what's funny? Uh, Gavin Norman, OSC fame, he released all that stuff for free before he released it for pay. So there you go. That's a good example. Not that BX needed a play test because, you know. Okay, Daniel was weighing in on a topic that Joe Richter and I were talking about. The idea that some of these games being released are not ready for prime time. A lot of these are going to be Kickstarters because a lot of Kickstarter projects seem to be pushed out before they're done, which is why you see three, four, or five versions of Errata coming out and fixes coming out after they print the books for the Kickstarter. So you get this printed book and now you have pages of changes, which is really crappy. Um, you also see this in video games where video games are released. Not that I play video games, but video games these days are almost in beta stages and you, and you just get pushes to, to fix them. Obviously, though, video games are a little more complex than an RPG. But Joe and I were talking about how, like, Romance of the Perilous Lands, there were things that weren't well thought out in that game. And then Best Left Buried is another, you, you know, game in here with a huge target on its back because the designer had kind of admitted he'd released it with, with the idea of getting feedback from players and all. Now, there's a new version of Best Left Buried out there, and it might have everything fixed. So if you want to spend your ducats on that and tell me if it fixed everything, that's cool. I... I do think Best Left Buried's kind of a, it would have been better as a, kind of as a white paper or whatever the PC version of, whatever the PC term for white papers these days. Because honestly, Best Left Buried has interesting ideas. The idea of the dungeon crawl as a horror game and, and, the, and the psychological damage you get from crawling through the dungeons and things like that. But I think you can apply that to any game. I don't think you need a separate game to do that. I think you just turn the game you're playing now into that game but that's just jason now daniel has more to say on a different topic oh wow joe's laying it down actually yeah i agree i'm not he's of course he's in the middle of talking so i'm calling in but i don't know about labeling fiat as americans whatever but yeah those games right because they show you hey this is the one thing you can do when you have the meta currency make the magazine be empty on the the rifle uh have extra monsters come whatever it can help teach a GM how to do it. What I think is funny about that, though, is I believe that most of this narrative stuff comes from just best practices of GMs doing it without the narrative American metacurrency. So it's kind of like full circle, right? It's almost like good GMs will say, I hate to label things, but I'll say good. Good GMs were already doing the types of things that now metacurrency tells you you should do. And GMs who want to be better or want to you know, improve or whatever you want to call it, can use the lessons from the narrative games that are maybe a little more spelled out. So yeah, it kind of comes full circle. I definitely think they go back and forth, but that's a really good way to put it. Uh, 
Great point. Of course, Joe Richter joined me on my last mailbag episode, which is why you're going to hear Daniel mention him a lot. I, I think Cockfield is the perfect example of this, right, Daniel? Good keepers never hid their secrets and the clues from the players. But obviously, keepers that weren't as experienced or weren't as good may, you know, were playing Call Cthulhu where, oh, you didn't make your library roll, so I'm not going to give you the clue. Obviously, not every keeper did that. Some keepers were good keepers, and they were letting the players get the clues, and the games were running fine. But there were enough bad keepers and inexperienced keepers doing that that in, that it was perceived as a Call Cthulhu problem. And thus, we get the gumshoe system, which really is just, you can read the thoughts in the gumshoe system, toss the books, because the mechanics aren't that hot, and go back to Call Cthulhu and play Call Cthulhu, just letting the players get the clues, right? So gumshoe really, again, should be a white paper, like all these metagames. Not, that's not fair. But if you like Gumshoe, then knock yourself out, play it. Hey, if you want to invite me, I'll play in your Gumshoe game. But ultimately, you don't need to switch to Gumshoe to run Call Cthulhu. You just take those lessons, which were already known by the good keepers before Gumshoe was ever written, and apply them to Call Cthulhu. Now, I know Daniel hates Call Cthulhu, but I'd be interested in Daniel's thoughts on that analogy. But but that's basically what Daniel's saying. Okay. Now we're going to switch back to BX and the idea that the lament of the loss of how to play examples in RPGs these days and, and the the current trend, oh, good, good, just go watch a YouTube video instead of writing a an example play in the book. Now to go back to what you were saying that I said, that somebody said, that anyways, about examples of play. Again, they can help you. So if you don't have those examples of play, then these narrative games help, right? But if I look at, and if you watch the video that I did where I go through the example of play for BX, it teaches you how to use those types of metacurrency, how it, how to deal with monsters, how the reaction rolls are handled, how to make a, a call, uh, allowing, for instance, Morgan Ironwolf to shoot her bow before the orcs went, even though they lost initiative, but because the orcs were so far away, you know, this is actually teaching you how to do that. And I think by stripping away from the games, the examples of play, and having that kind of stuff in there, you lose that, right? So then by reading these other games, you can get it back. Or you could just play BX. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not going <laughs> to defend Gary Gygax. Uh, I don't think that ego and being confident, and I mean, as the creator of the game, you can feel pretty confident, I would hope. But anyways, I'm not going to put those two things together. But what I will say is that Joe has not finished talking, nor have you started, Jason. So I just thought I'd insert this little thing. Maybe I'll call in with more after I hear what you say. But I'm not sure that the players in a D&D type game are playing the same game, in a sense, as the referee is. Yeah. Yeah. Think about that for a second. They're not equal. That is not to say that one is better or more powerful or whatever however you want to put it. But they're not the same. You cannot equate equate equate. You cannot equate a player in a D and D game to a DM because they have different levels of knowledge of what's going on and different parts to play in the overall narrative story that's being created together. I agree with Daniel here. Now it depends on the game. I'll admit there are games out there where a lot more power is given to the players, and the GM really is just 
an impartial referee or an arbiter or even demoted almost to just a player. Demoted is kind of a negative term. I shouldn't use that. But when you go back to old school games, yeah, the GM is a totally different role than the players. And honestly, the GM is more powerful than the players as far as what narrative abilities and what in-game mechanic abilities the GM has. Now, does that mean the GM should abuse that in outside the game in this in the um, interpersonal relationship sphere of the game? No. But, I, I mean, if you talk about a teacher and a student, yeah, the teacher's more powerful than the student, and that doesn't make it unfair. So the DM being more powerful than the players doesn't make it unfair. It's just a relationship, except that's what the relationship is. And as long as your DM's not a dick or a power monger, it doesn't matter. And if the DM is power hungry and the DM does abuse it, then talk to them. And if they don't change, find a new DM. Easy peasy. As much as I like the way that Joe was describing the fiat as kind of like a meta currency, I, I, you, they're not, again, they're not equal. They're not the same thing. And I think that when you add meta currency to the game, there's a certain like psychological thing that's happening there. There's certain player choice that happens. It changes the way the game is played fundamentally. Now, that's not a bad thing if you like that kind of game. And four games that have meta currency and that's used correctly, it's awesome. But to take a part that's not in a game and insert it into a game can often be awkward. So I don't think that taking, let's say, luck points and putting it into BX is necessarily a good thing. Um, I mean, obviously, people can do things differently. But what I will say is if I play a game of DCC that has luck that you can burn versus a game of BX, people do things a lot differently. The game plays differently. And that's cool, but I just don't think they should be randomly inserted. In the games that they are created for, I think they usually work really awesome, though. 100% agree. Having meta currency game fundamentally changes the game. It's a different kind of game. It doesn't make it good or bad, but it's fundamentally different when you know you have the power to alter the narrative. Okay, so first of all, it is the vice principal, not the principal, I believe, that handles order in the school. But anyways... Um, I think what's interesting is this conversation kind of falls back to the rule zero conversation and that kind of stuff, which in the end means, yeah, don't just don't play with people that are jerks or that can't handle the responsibility of being an impartial referee. You know, uh, I don't think any rules in a book or are going to change that. I don't think that if you're playing with somebody who's a jerk that wants to just torture and kill characters, even in a game that functions using meta currency very highly, you'll still be able to do that. I think I don't know of any game that is a GM type game versus a GMless game where somebody doesn't have that position of power when they could just do that. And I think you just got to play with the right people. You know, they got to earn their uh, GM license, usually by being a jerk and then realizing it. Yep. No matter how many rules you have, you can't stop a power hungry DM from being a power hungry DM. So. Unless, of course, all you're doing is only playing mechanically and the DM does nothing but move the other side, like a board game or a war game, in which case now you're not playing an RPG. Daniel's next call actually goes right into the one at the beginning of the show that BJ posed on the differences between meta currency that alters the role before you roll the die and meta currency that alters the role after you roll the die. So now it's been a while since I played. So, of course, you're not done talking, but uh, I'm actually going to use Fifth Edition of Dungeons and Dragons as an example of 
kind of something working in game that I think works really well if you follow the rules, which is the bard, I think it is, has a spell that can cast as a reaction that halves the damage, I think, of an attack on somebody. However, they can only use that spell after the attack has been successful, but before the damage is rendered. Okay? So it's not like, oh, they did 10 damage, that's going to kill me. Nope, I used my magic spell, that didn't happen. It's, they hit your friend, I used my magic word, the hit doesn't, uh, isn't that bad because the person's distracted and couldn't run the sword through all the way. So that's actually a pretty good uh, determiner there, and I think they did a good job with that in 5th edition. I think maybe not everybody uses all the rules, so who knows, but that's how it, that spell is supposed to work. This homework discussion goes back to where Daniel was talking about he had an adventure where characters ran through a dungeon. He had them take notes on the dungeon. And then weeks or months later, he had them go back through the dungeon as different characters that found the original party's notes. <laughs> it's funny. I called in twice with the same thing. See, I do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, just to kind of you guys talk about the homework. I mean, it wasn't really homework because I told them what I was going to do ahead of time. And they knew that they would only have these notes. So they took notes and I, and I made sure that, you know, they, they, uh, if they had any questions or whatever that their characters would know at that point, they had them for the notes. Then what I actually did was I had the player, EE was the one, she sent me a text document because she was doing it on her computer. And then I made it, I, I printed it out on kind of a paper and like baked it in the oven and made it look really old. I put a leather cover on it and I actually made a, uh, an in-world artifact that was like all of her notes and maps and stuff that they found. It was really, really fun and they would refer back to it and stuff. So. It's pretty awesome. Uh, I mean, I love uh, playing in person for exactly that reason, man. In-world artifacts are so cool. But that's a whole other thing. Tell me you're not a little bit jealous of Daniel's players right now. These next set of calls are about the idea of awarding players extra experience points for good role play. First, we have Taylor, the clerics wear ringmail media empire. That means he has a blog, podcast, and YouTube channel. And then we have some thoughts from Daniel, who hasn't quite reached that status yet. Hey, Jason. This is Taylor of Clerics Wear Ringmail calling in about role-playing XP bonuses. I am generally not in favor of XP bonuses for role-playing, and I just think it's a time bomb. One, you have people who will work it. They will figure out what the DM likes to see, and then they will try to hog the spotlight and do those things for the bonuses. Um, two, you have the interpersonal stuff. Uh, say one player just keeps getting bonus after bonus and the other one can't figure it out. They now feel put out. Why are, uh, why are that other player and the DM better friends? And it's just uh, no good. So if I'm going to have a bonus XP, it better be codified, and it better be something accessible to the, to the group. A good example of this is the way Arlen Walker, live from Pelham's Wasteland, does his Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyboria game, where a player can get 10% extra XP the next session for writing up a session recap and posting it. And then that a bit that the that offer to write up that recap rotates between all the players. Players don't have to do it, but everybody gets a chance to do it. Thus, it's equitable. Because at the end of the day, role-playing games are a team sport. So whenever you have an incentive 
for one player that doesn't affect the other players, it defeats the core cooperative nature of the experience. Look at uh, 2E, where fighters got XP for fighting, magic users got XP for casting spells. Those don't necessarily go hand in hand, and so you have different rates of progression and you have competition for what the party is supposed to do. Now if you communize the benefit, so say I have a character goal and when we achieve it everybody gets 10,000 extra bonus points, that's fine because the team worked together to achieve that goal and it promotes the sort of team aesthetic. So having been on record in many places and times, <laughs> as, as saying that I'm not a big fan of uh, DMs awarding things to people for role-playing, I'll just throw my two cents in here. I, I think that if you're going to do that, and, I, and again, I know that, that uh, it really depends on the group, but I think if you're going to do that, first of all, obviously you need to talk about that before the game starts, but if it's going to be specifically for playing demi-humans or what have you, I think what I would do is say uh, up front, like in session zero, okay, here are the qualities of an elf. An elf should do this, an elf should do that. You know, generally speaking, this is what we think of as a trope for an elf. That way, at least a player can say, it's like a checkbox. Like, okay, I'm playing a dwarf. I know I need to, you know, complain about something or drink ale or whatever it is that, that's like the most complain bingo, right? <laughs> and if you do those things, then you get the extra XP. Not just like this one random, the GM liked the way you played your dwarf. Because I feel like that becomes a little bit odd. That being said, because <laughs> you know I love me some Gygax and we're doing it. In the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide, it does in fact have an area where it talks about rating the players and how they play, but I do not think that it goes into them doing funny voices or tropes. It goes into like, for instance, if you've got a fighter in the group and they spent the whole time reading books or a thief in the group and they never, you know, crept forward to, to, to look for traps or whatever, then they should get less XP versus ones that did. Or magic users that never cast a spell but charges forward with their dagger every time because they're not playing the class. And, you know, that comes into the training though i think is is the big deal and i think it actually yeah, i think it has almost 100 to do with training again out of the book in front of me i'm not home but um so it's not like it's a new thing to rate people like that and there i am on the record not liking something that is kind of well would actually be very much old school you know this is the alienation thing is the exact reason why when i give out xp i very 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 rarely give any extra xp to anybody unless it's specifically noted like I do extra XP if you write a, a, a game log, like a campaign log. That's something I do in my game. But I don't just hand somebody extra XP because they played their their druid well or whatever. I, I, and part of that reason is probably because, well, first of all, it's simplified from my point of view. I don't want to have to – it's not my position to judge people. But also, uh, I guess unless you're in DCC, then you are a judge. But anyways, um, <laughs> I was actually in a campaign and – Maybe I'm dumb and I didn't realize it right away, but uh, the, G the GM was always keeping a racking total of the XP and not everybody was in every session and this and that. So it didn't really occur to me like to, to look. And then one time I was just in a session with somebody, I looked and I just noticed how much it jumped up on one character. And I said, oh, hey, you know, such and such uh, got more XP. And they were like, well, yeah, I think they did more to, to push the story forward this game. And honestly, I actually felt kind of bad about it. I mean, I know it's just a game and whatever, and I'm an adult, but it's like, I felt like, what, what? Like, we're all playing the game. And yeah, this particular session called on that character's trope more because that was the thing we were doing as a group we decided to do. But that doesn't mean that my character that couldn't do that thing. It's like, if you have a session where there's a lot of diplomacy, but I'm playing, a, you know, a fighter, uh, you know, I'm still there. I'm still playing. We're making a choice as a group for me to do that. 
if we're playing when we're doing a lot of hack and slash and the diplomacy guy stands in the back, they should also get the XP. It's like, we're all there. We're all risking our characters. So yeah, it actually turned me off and it made me, I guess that's what happens, right? Once something, I don't want to say bad, but once something happens to you that you kind of find disfavorable, I think a lot of times you find that you'll never do it to somebody else. And that's, that's why I don't do that. I, I just, I award XP. If you are sitting at the table and you're playing the game, you will get the same XP as everybody else. Uh, unless there's some kind of special, you know, campaign thing like writing up things, which everybody knows about and everybody has the opportunity to do. Interestingly enough, when Joe Richter and I talked about it on the pre on the previous listener call-in episode, we both agreed with that assessment that it's really a a bad practice because you're going to end up ticking somebody off or causing jealousy or causing problems, and it's almost impossible to award role-playing XP without offending somebody, so it's better just to avoid it altogether. I would be interested if anybody has successfully done it with a group that's been happy with it without any problems, although I kind of doubt I'll hear that story, but I'm interested to see if we do hear it. Well, folks, that's the show. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to all my listeners for giving me feedback. Really appreciate it. Without the listener feedback, this show wouldn't exist. I want to thank all my listeners that don't call in because I really appreciate you just taking the time out to hang out with me. I want to thank Gray Otis for the coffee cup clip art, TJ Drennan for the wonderful music, and I will talk to you guys this weekend. Take care. Joking about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I fiddle shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. I want some more, bring on the there is a dustman and your moil is by a tipper And I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Well the zombies are rising and the world is gone to hell We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck